Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast recorded at Dream Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing subfertility. As ever, all information is correct at time of recording. Any and all guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospitals NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the teaching fellows in emergency medicine. Um, I'm Anna. I'm one of the teaching fellows in uh, obstetrics and gynaecology. Okay, so in this podcast, um, in the previous podcast, we've looked at pregnancy and delivery. We're going to go all the way back to before uh, conception. Uh, <laughs> done it in a strange order. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about subfertility. Yes. Um, so problems with conceiving. Yep. Uh, so... Um, Anna, I suppose again, starting as we've done before, with definitions, what is the definition of subfertility and when should we start to think that there's a problem? Um, so I should say I've kind of I've called this subfertility rather than infertility because okay. people often talk about infertility but that kind of suggests that actually there's no hope yeah. and uh, you know it could never happen for you because you're mm. infertile whereas actually the vast majority of people we see is not the case it's mm. just that they are subfertile. Sure for possibly a reason, mm. but pregnancy is possible. Um, anyway, so basically, I mean, subfertility is a, a couple's inability to conceive a pregnancy after regular unprotected intercourse for, the definitions vary, basically after a year, mm. uh, you could start thinking about investigations. After two years, you would then start saying, if we if we hadn't found like any particular reason that we could treat before that, yeah. after two years you would then offer them IVF. Okay. If there was no other cause, um, so yeah, regular unprotected intercourse, failure to conceive after a year. Is there a definition on regular? So we would say two to three times a week um, okay. of unprotected intercourse. Okay. Optimum for conception. Opt- that's the optimum Throughout the menstrual cycle. Because sure. some women, some people, some couples, they focus on the time of ovulation yeah. alone. But the tracking, the rhythm method, you know. The, yeah. yeah, and working out when ovulation is going to take place and things like yeah. that. But actually, because we know that um, sperm can live inside the women's genital tract for actually for seven days, it's mm. probably better to actually have regular unprotected sex throughout the cycle. You're mm. more likely to actually get to the point then where the sperm there to fertilize the egg at the point it's released because you can't always exactly predict sure. when someone's going to ovulate okay so um say you've got a, a couple in front of you mm-hmm. and um they're, they're worried what's important for you to ask in the history um so i suppose it's probably helpful to think about what the potential causes are and that will help guide yeah. what you should ask them so if we start with potential causes in the man, mm. um, essentially the causes are going to be related to problems with sperm count, essentially. Um, and there could be lots of kind of reasons for that, um, which you would, you would potentially uncover when you start doing investigations. Um, but things that might suggest to you that there could be a problem is if the man has a history of sexually transmitted infections, maybe he has a history of um, undescended testes or he's had testicular surgery, um, maybe actually he's had significant past medical history, he's had chemotherapy or something like that, and so you've almost got your answer mm. straight away. Mm. Um, and hopefully in that case, actually, maybe he's had some sperm frozen. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Um, what else could there possibly be? It could just be something uh, like you know smoking history is really important, um, or alcohol drinking history because all that can affect um, sperm production. Um, asking about um, 
illicit drugs, especially anabolic steroids, because if someone's taking steroids, that's going to switch off kind of natural testosterone and therefore um, sperm production. Um, do make sure that you ask um, with regards to the man about if he's had any previous children from any previous relationships, mm. partly because that will kind of help you to rule it out as a potential cause if he's previously fathered children it's unlikely that he's got a problem with his sperm not impossible less likely also it's important when it comes to um, thinking about management options particularly IVF because there are certain NHS guided funding rules basically for IVF Um, and one of them is that if either of the partners have got children from previous relationships, then they're not eligible for NHS-funded treatment, ah. which always goes down like a lead balloon, mm. especially if it's the fact that it's the, the male partner that's got previous children and the female doesn't have any children. You yeah. tell them they're not eligible for NHS-funded treatment. At that point, you want to put a bag on your head and, <laughs> and hide away. Um, don't blame me blame but it's the the system that's the rules so Mm. anyway so it's important to ask about that Um, and general things past medical history um, is always important medications the patient might be taking sure and then what, uh, what about asking of the of the woman then? So similar things asking of her? Yeah, similar things that we've kind of already mentioned. So, um, But that's if we take them in turn for like the different reasons, I suppose. So yeah. uh, one of the causes of subtility is tubal factors, so yeah. uh, block tubes. Yeah. And one of the main causes of that is someone's had previous sexually transmitted yeah. infection, previous pelvic inflammatory disease. Um, so it's really important to ask about that. Um, if... Um, they've had any other kind of previous abdominal surgery that might also kind of lead weight, uh, lend kind of weight to the fact that it could be a tubal problem even if they haven't had STIs in the past. Um, ovulatory problems, so it's really important to ask about the woman's menstrual cycle, how regular her menstrual cycle is. Uh, she might tell you that actually she hasn't menstruated in very many months. Mm-hmm. Um, very unusual but sometimes I've had one person once that came and said she'd never menstruated ever um, which was very bizarre and it turned out that she actually had um, congenital absence of the uterus which is obviously very sad but it never been kind of she'd never thought to present with that problem until she came at the age, like in her mid twenties. I was going to say, how old was she? Yeah. Anyway, Uh, but that's quite unusual. But definitely ask about menstrual uh, cycle. Um and. Some of the other things that we should ask is um, how often in in the week um, the couple are having unprotected intercourse. Make sure it is in fact unprotected intercourse that they're having and if there's any other sexual problems it may be important to ask about those. Mm. Um, And yeah, about it. That's about it, awesome. Um, Are there any um, investigations um, and examinations we need to do initially? Um, So of the man you probably would you wouldn't need to necessarily examine him until we've got the results back of the semen analysis if the semen analysis is normal there's no real need to do any examination of him um if but for the woman um the key examinations to start with would be an abdominal examination checking for any masses making sure see if you can feel the uterus could there be fibroids um doing a speculum examination 
um, and taking triple swabs if they haven't already be done, been done. So these are hopefully all things that the GP would, would do and get done so that when she they, these couple come to clinic, all of like the results are all yeah. there, basically. Um, making sure... So we need to do triple swabs, check that she doesn't have any sexually transmitted infections. Um, you might take the opportunity to do a smear if it's due at that stage, but otherwise nothing, nothing else. Okay. And um, what advice would you be giving them at that time? Um, at that time, the general advice would be to continue trying because a lot of people in the pressure of everything is off and they know yeah. that actually everything is being investigated. It's not that unusual for a couple to conceive at the point they're being investigated or okay. you know, waiting for results. Um, so at that point, advise them two to three times a week to continue trying. Encourage the woman to take folic acid as well because they obviously are trying to conceive. Okay. And um, so you, you mentioned some different causes of the problem. So if we focus on an ovulatory problem, what, yeah. what are the management options open for us and the couple? Um, so assuming here that the woman is ovulating, but, but perhaps they're not ovulating very regularly. So I'm thinking about conditions like polycystic ovarian syndrome, for example. You may have, may have done that. You may have done an ultrasound scan and with some of the um, investigations that we uh, need to do. Yeah. Um, so... If we think about um, ovulatory function, um, some of the investigations that might be important are doing um, a day 21 progesterone, mm. and that will tell us whether or not a woman has ovulated. Mm. Now, actually, to be honest, day 21 progesterone is probably not a very good way of talking about it. What we mean is a mid-luteal phase progesterone level. So if a woman has a regular 28-day cycle, the mid-luteal phase is day 21. So the luteal phase is the second half of the cycle. Mm. Day 21 is the midpoint. If she's ovulated, you would expect the progesterone level to be highest then. Yeah. If a woman has a 35-day cycle, yeah. then the mid-luteal point is day 28. Okay. So there's no point doing it on day 21 because it will give you an, um, a false negative, basically. Okay. So just make sure you work out where the cycle is and then do the blood test from there. Um, we need to do um, an FA, FS, FSH and an LH, so follicular stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. We normally do those around day three or four of the menstrual cycle. Um, it's important that we do them at that stage because that's the point we would expect the levels to be uh, lowest. Um, if we did them much later, then they may be... Um, kind of elevated but actually that might be a normal part of the menstrual cycle so yeah. it would give us um, a false positive sure. basically um, and actually you want the levels to be low if the levels were elevated at the early phase of that menstrual cycle then you would be concerned that perhaps there was um, premature ovarian failure um, and that was the cause of the subfertility okay and um, so if we're thinking about ovulatory problems, what sort of management can we offer for the, for the potential mother? Yeah, so um, you can offer a medication called Clomid, which is clomiphene, so it's an anti-oestrogen medication mm. that essentially um, makes the body think that there's not that much oestrogen around, so encourages the body to produce more FSH and more LH, mm. and that encourages more... Um, more eggs basically to be or more follicles to be recruited and more likely that an egg will be released in a particular cycle yeah so you, you give that medication at the beginning of the menstrual cycle for three days and then um 
you continue to try as normal and we can do that for a period of six months while someone's trying and see if that is successful sure. um, the downside is there's a risk of multiple pregnancy from mm. having that medication so see previous podcast for <laughs> the complications of, of that sure um so um, if we're thinking then of going from the ovary onto the, the tubes, uh, yep. sort of tubal problems, are there any investigations that we need to do to, to rule that in or out? Yep, so we need to, <coughs> we need to know that if the tubes are patent and working. Yep. So there are two potential investigations that we could do. There's more, but not done in all, in all units. So the first one is something called a hysterosalpingogram, which is an X-ray of the mother's abdomen taken after some dye has been put into the uterus. Mm. And basically, if the tubes are working and patent, then we'll see the dye spilling through the tubes into the abdomen yep. on the X-ray. Um, that's why doing triple swabs is important, because you need to make sure that they're all completely negative before you start putting dye into the uterus and... Mm. You know, you don't want to have someone with chlamydia and then you put dye in and send the chlamydia up into the pelvis because sure. you can cause um, pelvic inflammatory disease. Sure. See previous podcast. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, the hysterosalpingogram is probably a pretty standard test. Um, but if somebody maybe has a history of pelvic inflammatory disease um, uh, or they've had recent chlamydia or... Maybe the history, when you ask them about their periods, they say they've got a lot of pain and you think maybe they've got endometriosis. You might do a laparoscopy mm. and a dye test. So the dye, basically, you're putting through the cervix whilst visualising the uterus and tubes from above. But if there is anything else, uh, like adhesions or endometriosis, you could treat it at the same time. So that's, that's the rationale from doing the laparoscopy instead. And so I suppose the management options there, if we find and what the cause might be, so, so obviously if you think find for chlamydia, you would treat for chlamydia. Absolutely, yeah. So, well, if they've got chlamydia, then you would definitely treat it prior to doing yeah. any kind of investigation of the tubes. Um, just having chlamydia in itself doesn't mean the tubes are blocked. It just no. increases the chance. Yeah. Um, if you find that there are, there's bilateral tubal blockage then actually really the management option is going to be going down the road of uh, in vitro fertilisation, IVF. Okay. Um, you can't, if the tubes are damaged, you're not going to be able to do an operation really to unblock them. Okay. Um, the only thing that you might sometimes do is if you do find during all these investigations the tubes are so damaged and they're very fluid filled, so we'd call that hydrosalpinx, mm. then actually you might take the tubes away because actually having hydrosalpinx reduces the chance of successful IVF. So okay. you'd want to do a bilateral salpingectomy knowing that the patient's going to go for IVF anyway. Sure. Um, and I suppose it, was, you know, it takes two. Um, we've looked at the woman and thinking about the, ma the man um, what, are there any um, potential management options for the, for the man if there's a, a problem with him um, so it depends on the cause so it may be simple things like so if the sperm count is, rel is just a bit low you might be able to encourage him to stop smoking reduce caffeine mm. intake um, oh, not reduce caffeine so it helps to reduce caffeine I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> simple things like um kind of tight fitting pants like we might encourage them to do all things basically that are not going to harm but may so that's not an urban myth them. it does help <laughs> it? well it's because um the the testes are if they're very hot mm. or if they're hotter than normal then it reduces sperm production and so therefore yeah. you don't want to be in an environment where that is the case yeah mm, okay 
It's what Ian Gordon Ramsay. Um, apparently, they had problems with fertility, and it's probably because he was like around a cooker all the time, and like ah. everything was a bit too hot down there. Ah. there so he, he spent some time away, and that was it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> or they had IVF. I don't know. Or they had IVF. Anyway, so you could try and reduce <laughs> some of the things yeah. that way. If there there may sometimes be an underlying cause, however, you know there may be if you find someone has got significant abnormalities on the semen analysis, there are further investigations you would want to do, which yeah. probably go beyond the scope of this, but essentially genetic tests, yeah. um, and investigations of the pituitary function and testosterone levels as well. Mm. So it may be that there is something kind of primary primary pituitary, you may be able to treat that with GnRH analogs. Mm. With something underlying genetic, then you're not going to be able to treat that. Um, it may be, depending on the levels of sperm, that you could um, kind of preferentially um, from the um, from the semen pick sperm and inject those into the egg, and it's still a process of IVF. Mm. But if there's not a lot of sperm around, then you may need to pick the best swimmer and actually inject it in, and that's mm. something called ICSI, mm. in- intracytoplasmic sperm injection. Or sometimes it's necessary to extract sperm specifically from the testis, and that might be important. It, that might be necessary if there was a blockage from sure. the testis from um, up into um, the outside world, so you therefore have to extract them. Um, so maybe someone's had a previous vasectomy, for example, and therefore you, that's how the sperm you get the sperm by extracting it directly from the testis. Okay. I suppose, and then if these initial options are, are not working, is that when you start to think about IVF then? Um, yeah, so, um, I mean, IVF is always basically there as in the background as a management option. Mm. Um, if you had an ovulatory dysfunction and you tried clomid and it didn't work, then certainly you could go mm. for that. Tubal factors, as we said, really mm. IVF's the only option. And then male factors, if those background things mm. don't work, then yeah, you may refer um, for IVF. Um, and that's true if the cause is uncertain as well so actually if all of the investigations are completely normal um, and the couple have been trying for two years then at that point you would um, refer for IVF okay so that's the point of two years we haven't actually found any reversible cause or any cause for for what's um, what's causing uh, the subfertility then to go for IVF yeah at that point, though, it's always worthwhile, I think, maybe just rechecking the history, going over for both the man and the woman, make sure that there isn't actually any kind of psychosexual problems. I've seen people in clinic who have actually been in the system for a long time and maybe they're not eligible for NHS-funded IVF treatment, so they're kind of, like, continuing. And actually no-one's really ever spoken to them about the fact that the reason why they're not conceiving is because they're not actually having regular unprotected sex and there could be lots of different reasons for that so it is worthwhile exploring if actually all the investigations are completely normal Mm. just checking that actually sexual intercourse is actually taking place yeah absolutely because you kind of assume that it is sometimes yeah but sometimes you need to ask the question specifically absolutely so it's a very delicate area with a very big holistic approach it is quite a delicate area, isn't it? Yeah. But I think maybe people are, uh, who are referred to a subfertility clinic are probably prepared you to be asked quite personal questions. You would hope so. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much, Anna. Okay, that was the Take Orally Subfertility Podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.